a Podcast One production. From the Inside with Peter Ricks. Peter Ricks is an Australian music industry veteran who has spent his life working in and around the music business in Australia. From managing artists like Marsha Hines, John English, Hush and Billy Field to 14 years as the original producer and chairman of the ARIA Music Awards. Along the way, Peter has made a lot of friends and it's some of these friends that you'll meet over the course of this series. They are the success stories, the survivors, the maniacs who helped steer the Australian music business from the 70s onwards and somehow they're all still relevant and thriving today. You'll hear their stories, their triumphs and their troubles, unvarnished and honest conversations with a bunch of unique, fascinating characters. Peter's guest for this conversation is also one of his very old friends, Peter and Harvey Lister first met in the 70s when, as Peter describes it, they were both fresh-faced, innocent new members of the early days of the music business. Now the chairman and CEO of AEG Ogden, manager of the largest network of venues in Asia-Pacific, Harvey has gone on to strike his own unique place in the pantheon of seriously successful, and some might say visionary, architects of both the music and events industries in Australia. Morning, Harvey. Morning, Pete. Uh, what an interesting journey. I must... I know about you from 4IP onward, but maybe there was some before then, but I'm very interested in that journey of, of how you were attracted to end up inside a radio station doing promotion. There you go. Uh, and, and it has been a journey. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, my, my mother had taught... Um, dressmaking at two uh, private girls' schools in Brisbane. And when myself and my two sisters were old enough to look after ourselves when we came home from school in the afternoon, she went and did one of the very first radio talkback shows when talkback radio started in about, you know, the very late 60s. And uh, and she did an Ask the Dressmaker show. And this was... AM radio, not... This is, well, there was no yeah. FM. And uh, it was on a radio station, 4BH. And, and when, after I finished uh, senior in 1970, I was going to be an optometrist. I went to Stradbroke Island with a surfboard, a fishing rod, an esky, a tent and a few mates. I think it was the start <laughs> of schoolies. And it only took me a couple of weeks to work out that I didn't want to study optometry for five years. So... In, in those days, we were all fortunate. Everybody got a job and uh, you'd apply for uh, four jobs and get off at three. And, and uh, so I, I wrote to uh, five banks and got off at three and, and decided to go and start working with the Bank of New South Wales uh, as a junior. And, and my mother said to me, well, you've got to do something else other than that. So she said... I know the guys from the radio station where I've been working, they have a radio and TV course called Air TV. And it was led by a guy in Queensland, Uncle Jim Arloff, who was famous uh, for an afternoon show uh, dressed as an uh, airline captain and oh. did an afternoon television show. And, and uh, he and another radio uh, 
veteran Ivor Hancock did a, an air TV show. So, so I went and did that one night a week, Thursday nights, and uh, and I was learning copywriting that I was hopeless at, and and a range of other things. How old were you? I was uh, eighteen, and uh, and Maya. Uh, the Maya chain uh, were really the leaders in fashion in those days. And, and again, in Queensland, they had this this wonderful uh, man, uh, Desmond Hughes, uh, who was uh, amazingly out there as a, as a fashion leader. And and he needed somebody new for the department store to do store announcements. So he went to the Air TV course and said, have you got anybody who'd be good at doing store announcements? And so they uh, suggested I go down and meet with him. And, and he employed me and I sat in a little booth and I used to read scripts during the day over the store PA about sales for things and stuff like that. And I'd been there two weeks and he uh, said, uh, young man, I'm going out to the new Brookside Shopping Centre, the new Meyer Shopping Centre is opening this afternoon, why don't you come with me? And uh, we, you know, we'll go out for the opening. So we went out there and as we arrived, the promotions manager for the Meyer store and Meyer ran the whole shopping centre as well. So it was the store and the centre and he walked up screaming at Des Hughes, I can't take this anymore, this is too stressful, I'm resigning, and he was gone. And so Des looked at me and said, well, young man, you, you, you have yourself a department store. So Serendipity. That, so you just have to be there. So that was, that was two weeks. But, <laughs> two but, weeks in. Yeah, but Des, Des did these most wonderful fashion parades. So fashion in those days, or when you came to spring fashion, was done around, they would do five major parades. There'd be one at the races, all within a couple of weeks to, to launch the spring fashion. Uh, there'd be one at the races. There'd be one at Parliament House. There was one at the Church of England Grammar School, which was really special. Um, there was one at the Toowoomba Carnival of Flowers, which was always the first, you know, the start of spring. And, uh, and there was a fifth one at a restaurant called Loopies of Kenmore, and I have no idea what the deal was, why my did one there. But anyway, so so my first thing I had to do for, for Des was to come to Toowoomba uh, for the uh, for this fashion show. And and if if the uh, if the models in the show did ten clothing changes, uh, Desmond did thirty. So he had a quick change dressing room. He did his commentary all the way through uh, the girls being on the catwalk, but with him being in the quick change. He came out in, he had, um, uh, you know, pith helmets and he, in fact, he had three different size pairs of shoes because he used to layer his socks up and then as they came off, we would go down a, pair, a size of shoes every third set of socks. And so my job, having never done this before, was to be his dresser. Oh, no. And so whilst he was commentating... I'm in this little room with 30 sets of outfits, hats, scarves, uh, with with Des continuing to do his commentary about here is so-and-so wearing French letterbox red and, 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 and I'm trying to dress him. I also had to... Uh, be responsible for the fog machine. And the fog machine was a 44-gallon drum with a heater thing in it and a basket with a piece of block dry of dry ice. ice that I had to lower him by a rope at the right time or already for the, for the finish, of course, which was the all-white winter's night um, uh, routine. Well, 
I got it so spectacularly wrong. I had Des going out with two different colour pairs of socks on. Um, he's putting his microphone behind his back because he called me dear boy. Put, uh, he had my microphone behind his back. Dear boy, dear boy. <laughs> wrong, wrong, wrong. And... Uh, and uh, so you know, I I was a little a little so, stressed because I'd never I'd never I had never done anything in that space before. So by the end of the fashion parade, I'd put the dry ice on too early. Um, I hadn't turned the fan on, so actually the dry ice came out of all of the walls of the quick change room. People thought there was a fire and started to leave. Um, and Des had a nervous breakdown, had to be rushed to hospital in an ambulance and was admitted to Toowoomba General Hospital and was kept there for two days under sedation. Entirely your fault, of course. And the next night was the show at Loopies of Kenmore. So we had to do it all again and we had no Des. Oh. So they, so the guy who had done the music, his name was John Cottrell, uh, brilliant. Um, John Cottrell became the compere and they said, um, don't think we'll have you be the dresser for tonight, but you can do the music. And that was my first DJ gig. Ah. And 4IP in those days particularly being the Queensland, Brisbane end of that empire of... 2SM in Sydney, I mean, pre... Colour radio, good yeah, guys. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, 2SM, 3XY, 5AD, 6PR. And um, in those days we had, I think, under 25, something like 65% of the market. It was, it was you know, when, when, when that radio station played music, we broke music. And was there a, a relationship between the radio station and the local music business in yeah, those days? Yeah, very strong. Yeah. And... Uh, and and so I, I was doing promotions, and Rod Pilbeam, who's uh, you, know, you know been my business partner for forty four years, uh, he'd started two weeks before me, and uh, and whilst he was in sales, so uh, he also did some on air shifts, and I used to do the outdoor comparing things because we 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 learnt a uh, we learnt a work ethic that you work seven days a week, and anywhere there was going to be a crowd, we had a sign up, and. Whether it was our uh, event or not, um, that uh, th- that we were there, we we would we would own it. This would be called ambush marketing in the modern era. So we did. So we missed uh, the Johnny Cash show at the old Festival Hall in Brisbane. But the trick in those days was to get people to leave a concert, go to their car turn on their car radio onto your station and then it would be on there when they got in the car the next morning for the drive to work. So so concerts at night time was about picking up breakfast ratings. And so, uh, so whilst the show was on at Festival Hall, we drove up a huge old fire engine um, and, a, and a big Hertz truck that we'd rented and we had a sheet uh, taped on the side of it and it said 4IP outdoor recording unit number 13 and then we took a piece of hose and we ran it from the back of the truck and stuck it in through the louvers in the toilet windows in John Wren's venue. That looked like that was the cable and we were recording the show and then as the punters came out of Festival Hall we had our, uh, our jocks with a, a microphone standing on the fire engine ringing the bell saying, uh, you know, Johnny Cash concert live on 4IP in 10 minutes' time, and so we ambushed market of the show. <laughs> that was dodgy, Harvey. No, it was about as dodgy as I've ever done in my entire life, Pete, but, but 
We, we also had to hustle it pretty hard in those days. You didn't get anywhere from sitting waiting for it to happen. You had to go out and make it happen. This is From the Inside with Peter Ricks. Peter is in conversation with Harvey Lister, the chairman and CEO of AEG Ogden. In a moment, they talk about Harvey's early days of touring bands in Queensland and how that set him up for a career in running events and then venues. I always remember the layers for IP to SM. You know, there were legendary men that we, we both know of in the Rod mm. Muir's and the Trevor Smith's mm where really you could walk in if you managed a band and hand over your seven-inch single and if they liked you and if the band had or the artist had some sort of local following, then uh, because they could see advantage in the relationship between um, that that local audience and the band that was a local band. Did, did, was that something that you... Did, for IP, did that have that same basic premise? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and I look back at um, uh, bands like Carol Lloyd and Roro Jim, yeah. uh, who, who were in that market, and, and, and we used them for everything. I mean, we actually gave them opportunities. We booked them for support acts when there was a show. In fact, I remember them supporting uh, Susie Quattro once. Probably wasn't a good call by us to put them on that because Carol Lloyd blew Susie Cotter off the stage and and she was the support act. So uh, that was a bit tricky for a while. But no, I think we also realised we had, we had a responsibility to grow the industry. But remember, we were coming out of an era where the only acts that had really toured were those American and sometime British acts that had mm. uh, come in, Johnny Ray and you know, all of those types of acts. And, and in the 70s was the first time that that Australian band were touring strongly and regularly. Yes, there'd been, uh, uh, yeah, there'd been the occasional tour, but the first one I ever took out was uh, was uh, Billy Thorpe when he did, you know, it's almost summer tour, and uh. took him out and did a uh, a full. Queensland tour. That's when I left radio to to start our touring business. So you left radio to do Billy Thorpe. Yeah, but uh. whilst I was at the radio station, um, uh, some of those guys who are still heroes in the industry today, um, you know, Roger Davies, uh, Michael Gadinsky, uh, Paul Dainty, uh, Michael Chug, uh, th- th- those guys would come to us at the radio station to cut a deal for us to promote their tour and then they'd say, look, we need uh, two follow spot operators, we need a Hammond B3 with a Leslie box, uh, can you find us a support act, uh, what hotel should we be staying at? And so as the radio station, we built that relationship, we became the local promoter in the market. Mm. As those uh, managers of those acts started to doing broader tours and people like like yourself, um, you know, you guys then entrusted those broader tours to us. So I, I took uh, Sherbet out on on a tour. Well, we did quite a few. We we, we did we did a tour with um, with John Paul Young, then another one with Ted Murray Gang, um, and then I put together a Queensland New South Wales Victorian tour. At the same time, Michael Gadinsky had approached us, and uh, and Rod Pilbeam, who'd left the radio station and came and joined me when we started the business. He had two weeks' holiday and he actually came on the road while we were doing Sherbet and the first night was in Toowoomba. It took one night and Rod had decided that's what he was going to do as well. <laughs> Seduced forever. So, uh, well, I wouldn't say it like that. <laughs> but 
Uh, so, but so Rod looked after uh, Skyhooks and, and, and I looked after uh, Sherbet. They were glory days. Yeah, they were, and uh, we we never had a problem selling out anything. But mm. but of course, we were breaking that next level of act at the same time. Who were coming through doing supports. So there was a there was an added bonus, wasn't there? In that countdown was was on oh, on television, huge. and that mm. that for me, my memory was that it meant that you could be in Toowoomba or Mackay, and that national broadcast meant that you didn't completely have to rely on radio to get the uh, to get the music known to the kids. To get it broken, I think radio needed to play it on high rotation. Yeah. And, and music radio was able to do that. Uh, I think there was a lot more product added than gets added today, but I can't remember anything in the last 45 years in this industry that was more compelling than Countdown was. So a couple of nice boys from Brisbane in the back of the bus heading their way up the coastline, presumably every now and then into Mount Isa and those sort of worlds as well. That's pretty rough and tumble territory. Did, did it, was it difficult? Because um, the, the circus, oh, forgive me for interrupting. So circuses, uh, I always remember when we f- I first started touring a band that the example was that uh, circus... Uh, travelling circuses had advanced men. They had they had this method of getting posters up in country towns, and <clears throat> they'd play often two or three shows in a day on a weekend. But they basically left the middle of the week for, um, for they, that's that's when they built the tent virtually, and they'd spend a week at most in each of those country towns. Uh, and here I was with a band that could only do at best one show a day, mm. and in order to pay the bills, we needed to pretty much do six shows a week. Mm, yeah, we had to do six a week. Yeah, right. and we had to travel between each place. and it was 250 miles between yeah. each of those towns. <laughs> I have <laughs> memories of this, Harvey. And, and here we are in Rockhampton, and, and then the next step is Mackay, mm. and then the next step is Townsville. All good places to go to in those early days to get an audience, but really... Um, the journey of uh, labour and the journey of the toughness of those sorts of tours been, I would have thought, more so for you and and Rod because you'd have to be there before us. Well, yeah, so, so, we, so we sort of followed the circus approach to things. Remember that in touring through country areas, the most successful acts had been uh, Cold Joy and Slim Dusty. And when Cold Joy would go through, they went through on a train Mm. and they would just hook on to the back of the next freight train that was going from city to the next one and then they'd get dropped off on a siding and then they would, they had motorbikes on board and they would, you know, can you imagine? And, um, uh, but, but, uh, Cole and his team had actually set up a set of relationships all the way up the coast, everything from box offices to every, everybody. So when we started and we would go into a city, I always went to the radio station and sat down with them and said, now, I, you know, I, I need to get to understand, you know, what it is that happens here in Cairns, what works for box office and oh, we need front of house people. Oh, well, Cole's always used sis... Kesby. So Sister Kesby, uh, as I recall, it was a, a nurse or a matron from the local hospital and she would 
you know, bring together a team of people who would do front of house. And so we got to learn for each city um, who to call, who to rely on. So, you know, some places we sold uh, tickets was a fruit shop, but traditionally that's where people went to buy their tickets. So I would go through and I would actually do the the pre-run before we started the press ads, before I went, I booked all of the radio, I'd take through all of the, you know, blocks we used to have in those days for our press ads and I'd have them all done for you know, Tuesday the 27th, next Tuesday, tomorrow night, tonight, and take all of those through. And uh, great famous story about Kevin Jacobson when he once did it for Cold Joy. And, of course, they get into the town on the day of the show and they everybody checks the newspaper and Kevin had booked all of the press ads. They'd all run on the same day and all of the ads said, Cold Joy and the Joy Boys, Tuesday the 27th, next Tuesday, tomorrow night, tonight. The ads are all in on one day. Um, but uh, but I guess that would have sold tickets. He was a piano player in the band in he those was, days as he well. He was a piano player in the band, that's right. But... So, so I'd go through, and I used to rent from Avis. I'd, I'd uh, I rented a Fairlane. I think it was a, a big aqua blue one because it stood out. I put a set of board racks on top. I put on a set of speakers on the on the board racks. Uh, I had an endless tape in the uh, in the car and I would drive around Mackay uh, whilst I was going to the radio station going to City Hall or the Masonic Hall to pay the the, the bond for the venue and and the box office and the newspaper and those things and I would run this tape about that uh, you know the the, the, the Sherbet and John Paul Young coming soon tickets on sale next Monday those things and, and then would change that you know just record it differently for the next town so we promoted it like circus and then uh, so I'd go through and I'd do that pre-run and I think that's where we built our relationship while we got into venues because the town clerks of those cities had had a lot of charlatans through who didn't treat their their city crown jewels, their city town hall or whatever with a lot of respect um, and I did. And I actually built really good trusting relationships with those cities to the extent that when we would come to town, I'd go in, I would pay them the money up front, and when I came for the event, they gave me the key. And so we actually ran the whole of the venue and they knew that before we had left the venue that night, we would have swept every piece of rubbish that was out of there and we left it better than we found it. So so I think that that's where we got interested in the venue management side because in those days you you used this wonderful line about we made it up as we went along. We did. Mm. We sold the tickets. We mixed the cordial in buckets. Sometimes we had to get the water out of the taps in the bathrooms to be able to mix that cordial. We tipped it into the paper cups. We'd set up really late the night before with all the 10 by 8 black and white photographs of all the members of the band and we'd sat there saying, love, Daryl, love, Daryl, for the merchandise. And then once the show was in, once the house was in, then I'd go and jump on a box and I'd push the follow spot and and did that. Are you still a control freak? Freak, no. No. um, I employ really good people and I try and... Uh, mentor them or, or motivate them to get on and, and be the very best they can be. But but I, I do some things deliberately because I think it's important to to 
show your employee. And, you know, unfortunately these days we've, we've got, I think by the end of this year we'll be at touch under 20,000 employees. To my great shame, I don't know everybody's name ever anymore. It's That's tricky. I used to know everybody's name. I used to know their family situation, their kids, what year they're at at school. And, of course, as your business grows, there's still some people I do know that about, but you you just can't keep up with it. But 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 I have a couple of little little secret tricks that we use. Um, There's a legend, forgive me, of of you um, visiting the kitchens of some of your <laughs> places. Would that be an accurate story? Well, it might or be. That, you know, just urban mythology. Do you think? Could be. Um, when you host a, a big banquet in a convention centre and people are leaving, it's a waste of time, in my view, trying to do research to see how they enjoyed the night. Now, they've either got a tank full of red wine or, or, or they won the award or they didn't or, or something. And, and, and I never feel that you can get a solid view of, uh, of whether we got the food right. For instance, mm. uh, I can always judge whether we got the AV right or the IT right, uh, and and, and I am um, I am a stickler for making sure that we nail that. So no, I, I prefer just to go and stand in the scullery when the plates are coming back from tables, and that's where you see what's on the plate. So if we've done an alternate drop, for instance, it might be a beef and a chicken in an event where it was half men and half women. Uh, um, and I can have a look at what's coming back and I can say to chef, you know, I think we got the portion control wrong tonight. Have a look at this. Look what's coming back. Um, we've served the, the chicken portion is too big for women. And ladies hate leaving uh, a big chunk on their on, on their plate. They feel awkward and wasteful about it. And in fact, we haven't read properly what their need is. And that's in fact what, what we should be serving. But I like to look at the carrots. And if the carrots are all coming back, I can say, just grab those two plates, chef, and let's just cut those carrots and let's see if we steamed them right or not. And then I walk out because that's all I have to say. <laughs> Who said that that was an urban mythology piece? In part two of Peter Ricks's conversation with Harvey Lister, they look at his recent work with AEG Ogden and remember his favourite moments in music. Now, we had no idea whether the power was going to be off for two days or two hours. We had no idea. And the, the little old uh, ushers with their white shirts and black bow ties at Festival came down the front. They had their torches on. She asked them to put their torches on her. And so there was a single white spot on the stage and she put her hands up for the whole crowd to be quiet. Everyone was quiet. And she continued that song and she sang a cappella. And she had no idea how many songs she was going to have to do before that power came back on. She was going to finish that show. From the Inside is recorded in the studios of Podcast One. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app.